Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, October 17th. We begin with an update on the war in Ukraine. How should the ramp up of Russian missile attacks be interpreted and what can we expect to see in the conflict in the coming months? We discuss with Frank Ledgewidge, Senior Lecturer in Military Capabilities and Strategy at the University of Portsmouth. It's Small Business Week across Canada. We get a breakdown of the biggest challenges facing our small business community post-pandemic with Pierre Clairoux, Chief Economist with BDC. What time do you eat dinner each evening? Could your decision to eat supper at a later hour be bad for your health? We'll talk about a new study on that topic with Dr. Ted Jablonski. And finally, don't be the richest person in the cemetery. That's the mantra of investment advisor Fred Montia, who aims to help you get your financial house in order on another edition of Motivational Monday. Is Russia getting desperate and what can their current military tactics tell us about the ongoing war in Ukraine? Joining us to talk about it this morning is Frank Ledridge, Senior Lecturer in Military Capabilities and Strategy at the University of Portsmouth. Good morning to you, Frank. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Good morning to you. Appreciate you being here. You always have a, a wonderful breakdown for us as what's going on. But, uh, you know, we're seeing Russia targeting civilians, it seems now. Uh, it has happened in the past. But uh, instead of going after the military infrastructure, is this a, a change in Russian tactics and why th- might they be doing this? Right, well, first of all, it is, it's, it is a change. Last week, last Monday, when about uh, 40 cruise missiles and what remains of their ballistic missile force went into Ukrainian cities. That represented the start of what's called a strategic bombing campaign, which is aimed at undermining the morale of the Ukrainian people. It won't do that. Uh, In the words of one of my Ukrainian friends, uh, it just makes us uh, feel cold anger and the desire to send Putin the same way as his destroyer the Moskva, which they sunk earlier this year. So yes, there is is a change in, in approach. We do see attacks on infrastructure. We saw some more this morning with a couple of dozen uh, wrong Iranian drones hitting Kiev and some other places. Could the ramp-up be uh, part and parcel uh, motivated by the uh, attack on the Kerch uh, Kerch Bridge in in Crimea? We're hearing more and more that that was something that really set Putin off. Uh, But do we even know who was responsible for the destruction of that bridge or the bombing? Well, Andy, the Russians say it was the Ukrainian SBU, which is their intelligence service, and the Ukrainian SBU have not denied it and, in fact, sent a couple of tweets uh, uh, rather elegantly suggesting that the Russians might be right. The occasion for last week's attack was the attack on the bridge, sorry, attack on Kiev was the partial destruction or damaging of the bridge. But I suspect those attacks were, in fact, certainly would have been planned a lot earlier than that. There were 80 missiles launched, and that would have taken more than a couple of days to wind up the targeting sets and so forth. Now, I think this was probably uh, part of, uh, baked into a Russian plan a few weeks ago, as their military situation becomes more and more desperate, particularly in the south of the country, where before too long, the Ukrainians will be taking the city of Kherson, and uh, threatening, in fact, the approaches to Crimea. They've already done it from the one direction, the Kerch Bridge, and they'll be doing it from the other, perhaps more ominously, with their ground forces uh, within the next month or so, well, probably maybe a bit more than that, certainly I would suggest before the end of the year. Frank, I'd assume attacking civilians is a, a way to sort of crush the morale of the Ukrainian people. Is that so? Yeah, it is. But it never works, you know. I mean, even we could go back to the 
Allied bombing campaigns against Germany, the British component of which was designed exactly to destroy German morale. It failed to do that. It succeeded in other respects, but not that. And pretty much every bombing campaign aimed at civilians since has failed for the same reasons. What it tends to do is make people more determined, whether that's in Hanoi in you know, the early 70s or the um, or Kosovo or Serbia, I should say, in the late 90s uh, and so on. And it's certainly having that effect, which is to say firming Ukrainian uh, desire to resist and ferocity rather than undercutting it. What it will do, of course, and what this is collateral to this is, is alongside it, is they will be trying to uh, increase the pressure by knocking out electricity and other utilities, but the Ukrainians have proved themselves pretty good at repairing and, uh, and, and, and resilience. Frank, we talked to Laden, kicked this segment off talking about the, uh, you know, up ramped up missile attacks and you mentioned the ground battle and as we move deeper into the year into the winter months how is this going to be a wrinkle not just for the russian invaders but ukraine and the defenders on the ground with the winter season yeah great question andy so in that southern part of ukraine what you're going to get in the next month or so are increased rains or at least that's what usually happens that's called the rasputitsa across much of that part of the world, it's where the roads start. It basically means when the roads start to fall apart, the roads won't fall apart, but it becomes very difficult for vehicles to move off-road. And that will make it difficult for both sides, actually. So what you're probably going to get for a month or so is a lack of movement, or at least we would expect that. The Ukrainians have been pretty good at confounding expectations. And then the winter will set in, and the Ukrainians are going to be far more better prepared than the the Russians for that, for obvious reasons. They've been better prepared for pretty much anything, and they're getting a lot of Western assistance to sustain that preparation. And I think then we're going to see some attacks down and again towards Crimea. And then comes the question, you know, to what extent then are the West going to tolerate um, Ukrainian advances? And we'll, we'll see. Frank, curious your thoughts as to whether the nuclear threat from Russia, from Putin, is becoming any more real, or is it still just that, a threat that nobody believes will actually come to pass? People believe that it could come to pass, and by that I mean analysts. We're we're nowhere near that yet. I think we'll start to get towards pink lines, but not yet red lines, as the Ukrainians approach, if they decide to do so, Crimea. Now, it's one, the Russians are now standing on the defensive and the strategic defense. That's one of the reasons they declared these four, and these absurd declaration, really, about the four new oblasts of Russia, uh, which are, uh, you know, seriously, to put it mild, no, they're, they're Ukrainian oblasts, no question, and the majority of the people in them belong to the Ukrainian, I've no doubt about that. That's not necessarily the case for Crimea, about which in Russia there's far stronger feeling. And I suspect if the Ukrainians cross that uh, Perikop uh, uh, isthmus, the, the, the route into Crimea, we may see lines becoming a bit more, a bit, a, bit, a, bit, a bit firmer, if you like. That's when I would be starting to think about how the West sees the war ending, or at least uh, uh, coming to a, or winding down, because what we want, don't need is escalation as Ukrainians start to move in there. That's only my speculation, um, I hope the Ukrainians take all their land back, mm-hmm. but there are certain political constraints which might have, which might apply to them. Great insight. Thanks for your time, Frank. We appreciate it as always. My pleasure as always. Thank you very much. Good morning.
That's Frank Ledwich, Senior Lecturer in Military Capabilities and Strategy, University of Portsmouth. Just seeing online right now that uh, Ukraine's capital is actually being attacked from waves of explosive strapped suicide drones now. So, yeah, uh, that is what's it's, residential buildings seem to be the target. Um, some soldiers and citizens trying to shoot down the drones before they can do any real damage and drop whatever they're carrying. But, boy, it's just it's not a terrible situation still in that country. And again, back in February, who would have thunk when uh, this I believe I believe that it was uh, February 24th without having it in front of me that eight months, nine months in, we'd be talking about this. And, uh, you know, uh, and the Ukrainian people still holding the Russians yeah, off. It's absolutely. amazing. It, it's an incredible story. Hopefully we can have some resolution as, as peaceful as possible at this point. All this week, we are diving into the challenges facing Calgary and Canada's small business community, it being Small Business Week. And this morning, we're joined by Pierre Cleroux, Chief Economist at the Business Development Bank of Canada, for some insight into the biggest challenges that are threatening small businesses across the country. Good morning to you, Pierre. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. What would you say are, you know, a couple of the biggest challenges right now facing small businesses? Is there still any kind of pandemic residual? Yes, it is, actually. Um, there's still a shortage of labor. There's about, there's about a million vacant jobs in Canada. It's not only because of the pandemic. It's because we have an aging population. But that's definitely one of the biggest challenges that people face. Inflation is uh, is really high, and this is increasing costs, reducing profit, um, and finally the disruption of the supply chain, which is the result of the pandemic. It's it's improving now, but it's still a big issue. Pierre, can you touch a little bit more on the inflation piece when it comes to businesses? Because in my household, I can decide not to buy something or you know, do without, but as a business that needs certain products, I'm thinking of a restaurant, for example, to operate, uh, they need to get these products together. So what are some strategies uh, business owners can use? Well, it's a real, it's a real challenge because in some cases, businesses can increase their own price, but in many cases, they cannot. They are basically squeezed between an increase of the cost, but, you know, with the fixed uh, price that they can charge. So, Automation is a great uh, way to help that because you can reduce your need for workers. So the fact that uh, salaries are incre- increasing doesn't have the has a big impact on your business. By uh, make sure that you don't produce products or services that that are not profitable. You know, it, we see many companies who are producing some of the product because they have been doing it for a long time. So you have to revisit your product and services you're producing to make sure that everything you do is profitable. And in this context that I've been changing, it's more important to do that than ever before. Pierre, is this the new normal? In other words, should business owners just forget about going back to the way things were, the old normal, for example? Or is this, we just need to think about the way it is now and, and what's going to change moving forward? Yeah, I think you're right, especially on some aspect of it, on the, uh, on the labor shortage is definitely the case. Uh, you know, 20% of Canadians are over 65 now. So many Canadians, thousands of Canadians are retiring every month. So this is a new uh, reality for Canada. So salaries have been increasing and we're not going to go back to the, to the pre-crisis level. The structure, cost structure of businesses is going to stay elevated because of the shortage of labor. So you're right, this is the new norm. And we have to make the adjustments we need to do to make sure that our business is still able to grow.
You mentioned, you know, with the shortage of labor, you're saying this is the new norm. But is, is that shortage of labor piece still the new norm? Or when are workers going to come back and when is there going to be enough resources when it comes to the human resources side? Well, you know, the, the, the problem we have in Canada is our population is getting old. So the baby boomers are leaving the workplace. And I give you a number that is really interesting. 21% of Canadian workers are now over 55 so that means that in the next 10 years, you're going to have 4 million Canadians retiring. And this is the case in every part of the country. So immigration is going to help, but it's not going to be enough. So that's why business have to prepare for it. And one way to the best solution is to invest in technology, in automation. Technology doesn't replace people, but it's replaced tasks. So make it easier for people, for businesses to continue to grow, despite the fact the fact that it's very difficult to hire people right now. Does that also speak to productivity then, Pierre? I know there, you know, some of the stats that, that came out, uh, productivity improves financial performance, and if you can break that down a bit. Definitely. Uh, you know, in this context of uh, uh, where we have a lot of challenges, to be as efficient or as productive as possible makes a real difference. So increasing productivity will help companies to go through the challenges and also if we have a slowdown in the economy. So it's important to be as productive as possible. Our study is showing that businesses who are the most productive, they actually increase their profit, they increase the value of their business. So the first step to make sure you are productive is to compare yourself. And we're launching today a new tool, which is free at bdc.ca with only three numbers, Businesses can compare themselves with all the businesses inside their own sector. So this is a great tool to see if you are a champion, if you're doing very well, and or if you really need to improve. Good stuff and uh, super timely topic. I think that all of us, if you're in business or have family and friends who are in business, we know that it's not the easiest of times. Thank you so much, Pierre. Thank you. That is Pierre Clarou, a BDC's chief economist, and he gave the website. I'll give it to you one more time. If you need more info, bdc.ca. What time do you eat dinner each evening? And could your decision to eat supper at a later hour be bad for your health? Well, according to a new study, that just may be the case. To discuss, we're joined by Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Good morning to you, Dr. J. Good morning. This is interesting and quite specific as well, pointing to the importance of eating dinner at an earlier hour. Tell us about this. Well, so this was uh, essentially two different studies. One was with obese women, so a small grouping, and the other was a group of firefighters, so a group of guys. And they looked at eating uh, earlier dinner versus a later dinner, looking at the percentage of of how much of the entire um, daily caloric intake was at breakfast versus dinner. So one, they front-loaded a higher breakfast and a lower dinner. The other was a higher dinner, lower breakfast. And then... Uh, the the uh, third parameter was eating within a 10-hour window versus within a 14-hour window. So a much tighter breakfast, lunch, and dinner closer together versus more spread apart. And what they found out, if you eat uh, dinner earlier, you're generally going to do better, less hunger, and get a better calorie burn. If, if you uh, eat a uh, percentage of breakfast is higher versus lower, didn't 
really make much difference in regards to weight management, but seem to those people seem to be less hungry through the day, so perhaps a slight benefit there. And if you ate within a 10-hour window as opposed to a 14-hour window, much better for calorie burn and weight management and hunger control. So that was the most interesting finding, I thought, that, uh, that a little bit of a tighter window seemed to control hunger and weight a lot better. So in other words, Dr. J, you're eating within a 10-hour period is what you're saying, right? You, you combine all your meals within a 10-hour period and then you don't eat again. Correct. So it's sort of, I, I guess, a bit of intermittent fasting mm-hmm. in a sense in that it's a little bit tighter with a, a longer period of not eating. But it, it speaks to that earlier dinner. I mean, it all comes together as in if I eat a little bit more uh, routinely, a little bit more scheduled, but tighten up that dinner instead of it being later, making it earlier. So it all falls within a 10-hour window. I get the best bang for the buck. It isn't just calories in, calories out. The timing seems to play into this, which is quite interesting. You know, obviously, we, we intermittent fasting, something we've talked about, obviously, this could be part of it, but we're t- focusing more on the time you're eating supper. But if, I, if I'm moving into that realm of thinking I want to take on intermittent fasting, or if I'm having trouble with my diet, how much of a resource would our family physicians be, uh, you know, as far as asking questions about our diets? Would be very good. I mean, we're much more open today, I think, about talking about things like this, and we do have access to dietitians. Uh, most physicians who work within primary care networks do have access to dietitians and can make those connections. So this is well worth talking about uh, and trying to, you know, help people uh, design schedules or something a little bit more regimented to try to tackle this so that you can eat a bit healthier and can perhaps manage weight and hunger a bit better. I know it's a big topic, Dr. J, but do you think that intermittent fasting does have some benefits to it then? Ah, this is a tough one. Yeah, I I think um, for the most part, um, eating healthy, exercising well uh, is probably the key piece more than the actual hours of, you know, eating versus not eating. Uh, But I think, you know, if if it leads to a healthier eating and a healthier lifestyle, then I have no issue with it. If it leads to a very distorted lifestyle, because I'm really doing on things because I'm really, uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm too overzealous with this intermittent fasting and I'm getting too long and I'm really, really distorting how I'm eating and, and living my life, then I'm not sure that I'm such a big fan of it. But as long as it's, it leads to a very healthy life uh, in the end, I think uh, a lot of this is, uh, can be implemented in people's lives. Good stuff. Thanks for your time and have a great rest of your week, Dr. J. Okay, you bet, sir. Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. How do we know how much money we want or need to live on? Is this current state of the economy something we need to spend a lot of time focused on? To help us figure out how to live the life we want to live, we're joined on this Motivational Monday by Fred Montilla, who's a Senior Investment Advisor at Harborfront Wealth Management. Hi, Fred. How are you? Good morning, Sue. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Andy. Happy Monday. Happy Monday to you. Okay, I know this is something that you say a lot, that, you know, being wealthy and being fulfilled are two very separate things. Can you explain to start off what you mean by that? Well, you know what, Sue? Um, For 21 years in practice, I've met a lot of families, um, and they're always thinking about their money. They're always thinking about the economy, But then at the end of the day, when you start asking them, how do you want to live your life? Every time everyone, they look at each other and they said, well, we don't really know. Um, So if you don't know how you want to live your life, so why even stress about your money? 
So at the end of the day, you know, the people need to start looking at things and say, okay, what do I want to do? Because the investment is just really a tool to, and it has one function and one function alone. And that is to sustain the life you want to live in. So that's what I always tell to uh, clients. You know what? Being wealthy and being um, fulfilled are two separate things. Let's find out what do you want to do after you retire. Hmm. Fred, it's interesting. Is something you mentioned here, uh, which is individual plan per individual or family. Is part of this issue, Fred, that we get caught up in? trying to keep up with the Joneses, what our neighbors and family and friends are doing, and their plan's completely different and it's not a fair comparison? You you know what, Andy, I think that's a great comment there. I mean, at the end of the day, um, a lot of people are um, trying to... uh, I'll give you one example. Uh, One of my clients came to me and said, Freddie, I don't think I've saved enough money uh, for retirement. Um, And I said, okay, well... Does the um, American dream have to happen in an American soil? So I said, well, you know what? Maybe perhaps if you're trying to cup up uh, uh, in Canada, maybe you're right. But what if we, I don't know, let's play with this a little bit. Why don't, what if we uh, buy a condominium or a house in Panama or in the Philippines? Uh, and you can just see the, the, the smile on her face. And she said, well, you know what? You're right. So essentially, at the end of the day, you're you're absolutely right. You know, a lot of people are getting stressed because they're trying to compare themselves with with others. So is that kind of you know? Obviously, we we need money to live. That's just a fact of life. So and when you don't have it, it can be super stressful. And a lot of people are experiencing that right now. But if we want to move forward and we, we you know we want to have a good plan, is it all about figuring that out? Then what is it exactly that we want to do? do you, are you a list kind of guy, Fred? Is that what we need to start doing? Well, you know what, um, so. The very first thing that you need to understand is you do what is called a reverse financial engineering. You first need to understand what you want to do. Okay, so when you say, okay, what do I want to do? Because if Andy said, well, you know what, when I retire, I just wanted to play golf every day. And Sue says, well, I just want to travel twice a year. Um, one is far expensive than the other. Okay, it's, it's normally the golfing. It's not the traveling. So once we understand when what you want to do, then we understand when. When you want to do that. So once we have a time and once we know how much we need to spend for that lifestyle, we need to start going backwards to where you are. That is the only time you can figure out how much you need to save every year, how much um, risk can you take on your portfolio, um, and go from there. So that's exactly what we need to do here, Sue. You you think, Fred, uh, part of the problem is it sounds perfectly logical what you're laying out there but a lot of people literally want to have their head in the sand and don't want to talk about money because we were raised maybe our parents didn't talk mm-hmm. about money in school uh, they, they talk a lot about trigonometry and uh, you know the, the different subjects but we don't focus on money is this a lack of education when we are younger you, you know what uh, and i truly believe that i i fully support the education at, at the school because um, I have um, I talked to many many families and sometimes to their children, and when they graduate university, they, you know a lot of people are not even familiar with how credit card works. 
Um, so I believe that education on financials is important, especially at the younger age, because that's when the time you really need to develop certain values and character towards money. And it may be like an investing 101 course kind of thing. I don't know if that's that's something that exists, but certainly in junior high or high school, it's never too early to start understanding how the markets work, how investing works, and what you need to do moving forward. Because, I mean, obviously we all know the earlier you start investing, the better it is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, again, it, it just starts off as simple as how does money work? How does the stock market work? Um, and what is compounding effect? How does interest work? And how does credit card work? So that is just a, a, a couple of things that you can learn at such an early age that will develop and help you develop your certain lifestyle in the future. I'm wondering if you can give us any tips or any, you know, kind of light at the end of the tunnel, Fred, for folks in a situation like this. And this is a situation I was in years ago when my financial advisor would call me up and say, you got to put more money in your RSP. You got to do this through life changes. At the time, I went through a divorce and it was, it was a very difficult time for me uh, as far as looking at that path ahead. And I'd say to these people, I don't have any extra money I can put toward an RSP right now. I really don't. And I felt like, uh, you know, it was against the wall and there's nothing I could do to forward my cause. Is there anything... That somebody who you know doesn't have those extra pennies today can do to move themselves forward, who might be discouraged and feeling like they're under the gun. Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I always believe of uh, playing the cards you're dealt with, and certain scenarios, um, you know, put certain people into difficulties into investing or saving. So, what really needs to happen is first, again, you need to understand where you want to go, and then look where you are now. And you know what, Once let's say you find out that, okay, I need to save an extra $500 every single month to where I need to go. Well, then, okay, if you look at your finances and says, well, I don't have it. Okay, the next thing you need to understand is, okay, how can I have it, right? All right, maybe perhaps a uh, part-time job somewhere there. Maybe I should start cutting up some items that are unnecessary. So it's really stepping outside the box and looking at where you are now and laser focus on where you want to go. When you start asking questions, okay, how do I get there? You will, you'll be amazed at what your mind can tell you, and it will develop certain strategies to get to accomplish certain things. Do you think? Before we let you go, I'm just curious with the the you know current state of the market and and interest rates, et cetera. Should people focus on that, or just let their financial people take care of this kind of stuff? Oh, you know what? So I think people should understand what's happening in the market. People, because what's happening in the market right now is necessary. Okay, a lot of people are fearing the the recession that is coming, but at the end of the day, a recession is not something that you need to fear. Recession is not something you need to understand, because there's more money to be made in a recessionary period. Remember, the stock market is nothing but a platform to transfer wealth from the greedy to the patient and the discipline. So at the end of the day, you know, people need to understand that. Very interesting, great points. And I think that everybody, if you use money on a daily basis, which we all do, uh, can connect with what you've had to say this morning. Thanks so much, Fred. Thank you very much, Sue and Andy. That is Fred Montilla, Senior Investment Advisor at Harborfront Wealth Management, and that's harborfrontwealth.com. 